0: Sign up today at ButcherBox.com Sleepy and use code Sleepy to choose your free-for-a-year offer. Plus, get $20 off your first order. ButcherBox.com Sleepy. Eat well, sleep well.
1: Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with Therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts.
0: Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy, a podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I have got a wonderful snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon.com Tannen Hole, Katie Downham, Paulina Ka, Maria John, and Griffin Gilman. Thank you all. So, so much for donating and being a part of making the Sleepy Podcast. For anyone who doesn't know, all these names are new supporters of Sleepy on Patreon.com. Um, so if this show helps you sleep and wake up more refreshed the next day, maybe consider being a patron yourself. Just go to Patreon.com slash Radio and donate even a dollar a month. $5 a month gets you extra perks, like uh, poetry readings that are not in the regular podcast, um, but regardless of how much you donate, I'll read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do. So that's patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Larkowski, and the cover art for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. It is now the second week of Women's History Month, and actually, as I'm recording this today, is International Women's Day. So, you're going to be hearing this uh, on Sunday, a few days late. But to all of our wonderful, wonderful listeners, happy International Women's Day. So, as we feature some wonderful women writers throughout history. Tonight, I'm going to be reposting uh, a book that has been requested a lot lately, but we actually read the book on the show about two whole years ago, and 140-something episodes later, I think I got lost in the scuffle, and some people don't know that this wonderful, wonderful story is actually on the show, so... To bump this right up to the top of the podcast feed tonight, we're going to be reading Anne of Green Gables by Lucy Maud Montgomery. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes. And let me read to you. Chapter One Mrs. Rachel Lynde is Surprised Mrs. Rachel Lynde lived just where the Avonlea main road dipped down into a little hollow, fringed with alders and ladies' eardrops and traversed by a brook that had its source away back in the woods of the old Cuthbert place. It was reputed to be an intricate, headlong brook in its earlier course through the woods, with dark secrets of pool and cascade. But by the time it reached Hollow, it was a quiet, well-conducted little stream, for not even a brook could run past Mrs. Rachel Lynn's door without due regard for decency and decorum. It probably was conscious that Mrs. Rachel was sitting at her window, keeping a sharp eye on everything that passed, from brooks and children up, and that if she noticed anything odd or out of place, She would never rest until she had ferreted out the whys and the wherefores thereof. There are plenty of people in Avonlea and out of it who can attend closely to their neighbors' business by dint of neglecting their own. But Mrs. Rachel Lynn was one of those capable creatures who can manage their own concerns and those of other folks into a bargain. She was a notable housewife. Her work was always done, and well done. She ran the sewing circle, helped run the Sunday school, and was the strongest prop of the Church Aid Society and the Foreign Missions Auxiliary. Yet, with all this, Mrs. Rachel found abundant time to sit for hours at her kitchen window, knitting cotton warp quilts. She had knitted 16 of them, as Avonlea housekeepers were wont to tell in awed voices, and keeping a sharp eye on the main road that crossed the hollow and wound up the steep red hill beyond. Since Avonlea occupied a little triangular peninsula jutting into the GO, jutting out into the Gulf of the St. Lawrence with water on two sides of it, Anybody who went out of it, or into it, had to pass over the hill road and so run the unseen gauntlet of Mrs. Rachel's all-seeing eye. She was sitting there, one afternoon, in early June. The sun was coming in, at the window, warm and bright. The orchard on the slope below the house was in a bridal flush of pinky-white bloom, hummed over by a myriad of bees. Thomas Lynde, a meek little man whom heavenly people called Rachel Lynde's husband, was sowing his late turnip seed on the hill field beyond the barn, and Matthew Cuthbert ought to have been sowing his on the big red brook field away over by Green Gables. Mrs. Rachel knew that he ought, because she had heard him tell Peter Morrison the evening before in William J. Blair's store, over a carmody that he meant to sow his turnip seed the next afternoon. Peter had asked him, of course, for Matthew Cuthbert had never been known to volunteer information about anything in his whole life. And yet, here was Matthew Cuthbert, at half past three in the afternoon of a busy day, placidly driving over the hollow and up the hill. Moreover, He wore a white collar and his best suit of clothes which was plain proof that he was going out of Avonlea. And he had the buggy and the sorrel mare which betokened that he was going a considerable distance. Now, where was Matthew Cuthbert going and why was he going there? Had it been any other man in Avonlea Mrs. Rachel, deftly putting this and that together, might have given a pretty good guess as to both questions. But Matthew so rarely went from home that it must be something pressing and unusual which was taking him. He was the shyest man alive and hated to have to go among strangers or to any place where he might have to talk. Matthew, dressed up with a white collar and driving in a buggy, was something that didn't happen often. Mrs. Rachel, ponder as she might, could make nothing of it, and her afternoon's enjoyment was spoiled. I'll just step over to Green Gables after tea and find out from Marilla where he's gone and why. The worthy woman finally concluded, he doesn't generally go to town this time of year. And he never visits. If he'd run out of turnip seed, he wouldn't dress up and take the buggy to go for more. He wasn't driving fast enough to be going for a doctor. Yeah, something must have happened since last night to start him off. I'm clean puzzled, that's what and I won't know a minute's peace of mind or conscience until I know what has taken Matthew Cuthbert out of Avonlea today. Accordingly after tea, Mrs. Rachel set out. She had not far to go. The big, rambling, orchard and bowered house where the Cuthberts lived was a scant quarter of a mile up the road from Lynn's Hollow. To be sure, the long lane made it a good deal further. Matthew Cuthbert's father, as shy and silent as his son after him, had got as far away as he possibly could from his fellow men without actually retreating into the woods when he founded his homestead. Green Gables was built at the furthest edge of his cleared land and there it was to this day, barely visible from the main road along which all the other Avonlea houses were so sociably situated. Mrs. Rachel Lynn did not call living in such a place, living, at all. It's just staying, that's what, she said as she stepped along the deep, rutted, grassy lane bordered with the wild rose bushes. It's no wonder Matthew and Marilla are both a little odd, living away back here by themselves. Trees aren't much company, though, dear knows if they were. There'd be enough of them. I'd rather look at people. To be sure, they seem contented enough. But then, I suppose, they're used to it. A body can get used to anything, even to being hanged, as the Irishman said. With this, Mrs. Rachel stepped out of the lane into the backyard of green gables. Very green and neat and precise was that yard, set about on one side with great patriarchal windows and on the other with prim Lombardies. Not a stray stick nor stone was to be seen, for Mrs. Rachel would have seen it if there had been. Privately, she was of the opinion that Marilla Cuthbert swept that yard over as often as she swept her house. One could have eaten a meal, "'off the ground without overbrimming the proverbial peck of dirt. "'Mrs. Rachel rapped smartly at the kitchen door, "'stepped in when bidden to do so. "'The kitchen at Green Gables was a cheerful apartment, "'or would have been cheerful "'if it had not been so painfully clean "'as to give it something of an appearance of an unused parlor. "'Its windows looked east and west,' through the west one looking at the backyard came a flood of mellow June sunlight but the east one whence you got a glimpse of the bloom white cherry trees in the left orchard and nodding slender birches down in the hollow by the brook was greened over by a tangle of vines here sat Marilla Cuthbert when she sat at all always slightly distrustful of sunshine, which seemed to her too dancing and irresponsible a thing for a world which was meant to be taken seriously. And here she sat now, knitting, and the table behind her was laid for supper. Mrs. Rachel, before she had fairly closed the door, had taken mental note of everything that was on the table, there were three plates laid, so that Marilla must be expecting someone home with Matthew to tea. But the dishes were everyday dishes, and there was only crab apple preserves and one kind of cake, so that the expected company cannot be any particular company. Yet, yeah, what of Matthew's white collar and the sorrel mare? Mrs. Rachel was getting fairly dizzy with this. Unusual mystery about quiet, unmysterious green gables. Good evening, Rachel, Marilla said briskly. This is a real fine evening, isn't it? Won't you sit down? How are all your folks? Something that for a lack of any other name might be called, friendship existed and always had existed between Marilla Cuthbert and Mrs. Rachel, in spite of, or perhaps because of, their dissimilarity. Marilla was a tall, thin woman, with angles and without curves. Her dark hair showed some gray streaks, and was always twisted up in a hard little knob behind, with two wire hairpins stuck aggressively through it. She looked like a woman of narrow experience, and rigid conscience, which she was, but there was a saving something about her mouth, which, if it had been ever so slightly developed, might have been considered indicative of a sense of humor. We're all pretty well, said Mrs. Rachel. I was kind of afraid you weren't, though. When I saw Matthew starting off today, I thought maybe he was going to the doctor's, Marilla's lips twitched understandingly. She had expected Mr. Rachel up. She had known that the sight of Matthew jaunting off so unaccountably would be too much for her neighbor's curiosity. Oh no, I'm quite well, although I had a bad headache yesterday, she said. Matthew went to Bright River. We're getting a little boy from an orphan asylum in Nova Scotia and he's coming on the train tonight. If Marilla had said that Matthew had gone to Bright River to meet a kangaroo from Australia, Mrs. Rachel could not have been more astonished. She was actually stricken dumb for five seconds. It was unsupposable that Marilla was making fun of her, but Mrs. Rachel was almost forced to suppose it. Are you in earnest, Marilla? She demanded when voice returned to her. Yes, of course, said Marilla, as if getting boys from orphan asylums in Nova Scotia were part of the usual spring work on any well-regulated Avonlea farm instead of being an unheard-of innovation. Mrs. Rachel felt that she had received a severe mental jolt. She thought in exclamation points, a boy... Marilla and Matthew Cuthbert, of all people, adopting a boy from an orphan asylum. Well, the world was certainly turning upside down. She would be surprised at nothing after this. Nothing. What on earth put such a notion into your head, she demanded disapprovingly. This had been done without her advice being asked, and must perforce be disproved. Well, we've been thinking about it for some time. All winter, in fact. Mrs. Alexander Spencer was up here one day before Christmas, and she said she was going to get a little girl from the asylum over in Hopetown in the spring. Her cousin lives there, and Mrs. Spencer has visited her and knows all about it. So Matthew and I have talked it over, off and on, ever since. We thought we'd get a boy. Matthew is getting up in years, you know, he's 60, and he isn't so spry as he once was. His heart troubles him a good deal, and you know how desperate hard it's got to be to get hired help. There's never anybody to be had but those stupid, half-grown little French boys, and as soon as you do get one broke into your ways and taught something, he's up and off to the lobster canneries or the states. At first... Matthew suggested getting a Barnado boy, but I said, no flat to that. They may be alright, I'm not saying they're not, but no London street Arabs for me, I said. Give me a native born, at least. There'll be a risk, no matter who we get, but I'll feel easier in my mind and sleep sounder at night if we get a born Canadian. So in the end, we decided to ask Mr. Spencer to pick us out one when she went over to get her little girl. We heard last week she was going, so we sent her word by Richard Spencer's folks at Carmody to bring us a smart, likely boy of about 10 or 11. We decided that would be the best age, old enough to be of some use in doing chores right off and young enough to be trained up proper. We mean to give him a good home and schooling. We had a telegram from Mrs. Alexander Spencer today. The mailman brought it from the station, saying they were coming in at 5.30 on the train tonight. So Matthew went to Bright River to meet him. Mrs. Spencer will drop him off there. Of course, she goes on to White Sands Stations herself. Mrs. Rachel prided herself on always speaking her mind. She proceeded to speak it now, having adjusted her mental attitude to this amazing piece of news. Well, Marilla, I'll just tell you plain, that I think you're doing a mighty foolish thing. A risky thing, that's what. You don't know what you're getting. You're bringing a strange child into your house and home, and you don't know a single thing about him, nor what his disposition is, like nor what sort of parents he had or how he's likely to turn out. Why, it was only last week I read in the paper how a man and his wife up west of the island took a boy out of an orphan asylum and he set fire to the house at night, set it on purpose, Marilla, and nearly burned them to a crisp in their beds. And I know another case or an adopted boy used to suck the eggs, and they couldn't break him off of it. If you had asked my advice in the matter, which you didn't do, Marilla, I'd have said that for mercy's sake, not to think of such a thing. That's what. This Job's comforting seemed neither to offend nor alarm Marilla. She knitted steadily on. I don't deny there's something in what you say, Rachel. I've had some qualms myself, but Matthew was terrible set on it. I could see that, so I gave in. It's so seldom Matthew sets his mind on anything that when he does, I always feel it's my duty to give in. And as for the risk, there's risks in pretty near everything a body does in this world. There's risks in people's having children of their own when it comes to that. They don't always turn out well. And then Nova Scotia is right close to the island. It isn't as if we're getting it from England or the States. He can't be much different from ourselves. Well, I hope it will turn out all right, said Mrs. Rachel in a tone that plainly indicated her painful doubts. Only don't say I didn't warn you if he burns Green Gables down or puts strychnine in the well. I heard of a case over in New Brunswick where an orphan asylum child did that and the whole family died in fearful agonies. Only, it was a girl in that instance. Well, we're not getting a girl, said Marilla, as if poisoning wells were a purely feminine accomplishment and not to be dreaded in the case of a boy. I'd never dream of taking a girl to bring up. I wonder at Mrs. Alexander Spencer for doing it. But there, she wouldn't shrink from adopting a whole orphan asylum if she took it into her head. Mrs. Rachel would have liked to stay until Matthew came home with his imported orphan. But reflecting that, it would be good two hours at least before his arrival. She concluded to go up the road to Robert Bell's and tell the news would certainly make a sensation second to none and mrs rachel dearly loved to make a sensation so she took herself away somewhat to marilla's relief for the latter felt her doubts and fears reviving under the influence of mrs rachel's pessimism well of all things that ever were or will be ejaculated mrs rachel when she was safely out in the lane it does really seem as if I must be dreaming. Well, I'm sorry for that poor young one, and no mistake. Matthew and Marilla don't know anything about children, and they'll expect him to be wiser and steadier than his own grandfather. If so, be he's ever had a grandfather, which is doubtful. It seems uncanny to think of a child at Green Gables somehow. There's never been one there, for Matthew and Marilla were grown up, the new house was built if there were children which is hard to believe when one looks at them I wouldn't be in that orphan's shoes for anything my but I pity him that's what so said Mrs. Rachel to the wild rose bushes out of the fullness of her heart but if she could have seen the child who was waiting patiently at the bright river station at that very moment Her pity would have been still deeper and more profound. Chapter 2. Matthew Cuthbert is Surprised Matthew Cuthbert and the sorrel mare jogged comfortably over eight miles to Bright River. It was a pretty road, running along between snug farmsteads with now and again a bit of balsamy fir road to drive through, or a hollow where wild plums hung out their filmy bloom. The air was sweet, with the breath of many apple orchards, and the meadows sloped away in the distance of horizon mists of pearl and purple, while the little birds sang as if it were the one day of summer in all the year. Matthew enjoyed the drive after his own fashion except during the moments when he met women and had to nod to them for in Prince Edward Island you're supposed to nod to all and sundry you meet on the road whether you know them or not. Matthew dreaded all women except Marilla and Mrs. Rachel. He had an uncomfortable feeling that mysterious creatures were secretly laughing at him. He may have been quite right in thinking so, for he was an odd-looking personage, an ungainly figure, and long iron-gray hair that touched his stooping shoulders, and a full soft brown beard which he had worn ever since he was twenty. In fact, he had looked at twenty very much as he looked at sixty, lacking a little of the grayness. When he reached Bright River, there was no sign of any train. He thought he was too early, so he tied his horse in the yard of the small Bright River Hotel and went over to the station house. The long platform was almost deserted, the only living creature in sight being a girl who was sitting on a pile of shingles at the extreme end. Matthew, barely noting it was a girl, sidled past her as quickly as possible without looking at her. Had he looked, he could hardly have failed to notice the tense rigidity and expectation of her attitude and expression. She was sitting there waiting for something or somebody and, since sitting and waiting was the only thing to do just then, she sat and waited with all her might and main. Matthew encountered the station master locking up the ticket office preparatory to going home for supper and asked him if the 5.30 train would be along soon. The 5.30 train has been in and gone half an hour ago, answered that brisk official. But there was a passenger drop off for you, a little girl. She's sitting out there on the shingles. I asked her to go into the ladies waiting room but she informed me gravely that she preferred to stay outside. There was more scope for imagination she said. She's a case I should say. I'm not expecting a girl said Matthew blankly. It's a boy I've come for. He should be here. Mrs. Alexander Spencer was to bring him over from Nova Scotia for me. The stationmaster whistled. Guess there's some mistake, he said. Mrs. Spencer came off the train with that girl and gave her into my charge. Said you and your sister were adopting her from an orphan asylum and that you would be along for her presently. That's all I know about it, and I haven't got any more orphans concealed hereabouts. I don't understand, said Matthew helplessly wishing that Marilla was at hand to cope with the situation. Well, you better question the girl, said the stationmaster carelessly. I dare say she'll be able to explain. She's got a tongue of her own, that's certain. Maybe they were out of boys of the brand you wanted. He walked jauntily away, being hungry, and the unfortunate math he was left to do, that which was harder for him, then bearding a lion in its den, walk up to a girl, a strange girl, an orphan girl, and demand of her why she wasn't a boy. Matthew groaned in spirit as he turned about and shuffled gently down the platform toward her. She had been watching him ever since he had passed her, and she had her eyes on him now. Matthew was not looking at her, and would not have seen what she was really like if he had been. But an ordinary observer would have seen this. A child of about eleven, garbed in a very short, very tight, very ugly dress of yellowish-gray wincey. She wore a faded brown sailor hat, and beneath the hat, extending down to her back, were two braids of very thick, decidedly red hair. Her face was small, white and thin, also much freckled. Her mouth was large, and so were her eyes, which looked green in some lights and moods of gray in others. So far, the ordinary observer, an extraordinary observer, might have seen that the chin was very pointed and pronounced, that the big eyes were full of spirit and vivacity that the mouth was sweet-lipped and expressive, and that the forehead was broad and full. In short, our discerning extraordinary observer might have concluded that no commonplace soul inhabited the body of this stray woman child of whom shy Matthew Cuthbert was so ludicrously afraid of. Matthew, however, was spared the ordeal of speaking first, as soon as she concluded that he was coming to her she stood up grasping the one thin brown hand with a handle of shabby old fashioned carpet bag the other she held out to him I suppose you are Mr. Matthew I suppose you are Mr. Matthew Cuthbert of Green Gables she said in a peculiarly clear sweet voice I'm very glad to see you. I was beginning to be afraid you weren't coming for me. And I was imagining all the things that might have happened to prevent you. I had made up my mind that if you didn't come for me tonight, I'd go down to track that big wild cherry tree at the end and climb up into it and stay all night. I wouldn't have been a bit afraid. and It would be lovely to sleep in a wild cherry tree all white with bloom in the moonshine, don't you think? You could imagine you were dwelling in marble halls, couldn't you? And I was quite sure you would come for me in the morning, if you didn't tonight. Matthew had taken the scrawny little hand awkwardly in his. Then and there he decided what to do. He could not tell this child, with the glowing eyes, that there had been a mistake. He would take her home and let Marilla do that. She couldn't be left at Bright River anyhow, no matter what mistake was made. So all questions and explanations might as well be deferred until he was safely back at Green Gables. I'm sorry I was late, he said shyly. Come along. The horse is over in the yard. Give me your bag. Oh, I can carry it, the child responded cheerfully. It isn't heavy. I've got all my worldly goods in it, but it isn't heavy. And if it isn't carried in just a certain way, the handle pulls out. So I'd better keep it because I know the exact knack of it. It's an extremely old carpet bag. Oh, I'm very glad you've come. Even if it would have been nice to sleep in a wild cherry tree. We've got to drive a long piece, haven't we? Mrs. Spencer said it was eight miles. I'm glad. I love driving oh it seems so wonderful that I'm going to live with you and belong to you I've never belonged to anybody not really but the asylum was the worst I've only been in it for four months but that was enough I don't suppose you were ever an orphan in an asylum so you can't possibly understand what it's like it's worse than anything you could imagine Mrs. Spencer said it was wicked of me to talk like that, but I didn't mean to be wicked. It's so easy to be wicked without knowing, isn't it? They were good, you know, the asylum people, but there is so little scope for the imagination in an asylum, only just in the other orphans. It was pretty interesting to imagine things about them, to imagine that perhaps the girl who sat next to you was really the daughter of a belted earl who had been stolen away from her parents in her infancy by a cruel nurse who died before she could confess. I used to lie awake at nights and imagine things like that because I didn't have time in the day. I guess that's why I'm so thin. I am dreadful thin, ain't I? There isn't a pick on my bones. I do love to imagine I'm nice and plump with dimples in my elbows. With this, Matthew's companion stopped talking, partly because she was out of breath and partly because they had reached the buggy. Not another word did she say until she had left the village and were driving down a steep little hill, the road part of which had been cut so deeply into the soft soil of the banks, fringed with blooming wild cherry trees and slim white birches were several feet above their heads. The child put out her hand and broke off a branch of wild plum that brushed against the side of the buggy. Isn't that beautiful? What did that tree, leaning out from the bank, all white and lacy, make you think of, she asked. Well, now, I don't know, said Matthew. Why, a bride, of course. A bride all in white, with a lovely misty veil. i never seen one but I can imagine what she would look like. I don't ever expect to be a bride myself. I am so homely, nobody will ever want to marry me, unless it might be a foreign missionary. I suppose a foreign missionary might not be very particular, but I do hope that someday I shall have a white dress. That is my highest ideal of earthly bliss. I just love pretty clothes, and I've never had a pretty dress in my life that I can remember. But of course, it's all the more to look forward to, isn't it? And then I can imagine that I'm dressed gorgeously. This morning when I left the asylum, I felt so ashamed because I had to wear this horrid old wincey dress. All the orphans had to wear them, you know. A merchant in Hopeton last winter donated 300 yards of wincey to the asylum. Some people said it was because he couldn't sell it, but I'd rather believe that. It was out of the kindness of his heart wouldn't you? When we got on the train, I felt as if everybody must be looking at me and pitying me. But I just went to work and imagined that I had on the most beautiful pale blue silk dress. Because when you are imagining, you might as well imagine something worthwhile. And a big hat all flowers and nodding plumes and a gold watch and kid gloves and boots I felt cheered up right away, and I enjoyed my trip to the island with all my might. I wasn't a bit sick coming over in the boat. Neither was Mrs. Spencer, although she generally is. She said she hadn't had time to get sick, watching to see that I didn't fall overboard. She said she never saw the beat of me for prowling about. But if it kept her from being seasick, it's a mercy I did prowl, isn't it? I wanted to see everything that was to be seen on that boat, because I didn't know whether I'd ever have another opportunity. Oh, there are a lot more cherry trees all in bloom. This island is the bloomiest place. I just love it already, and I'm so glad I'm going to live here. I've always heard that Prince Edward Island was the prettiest place in the world, and I used to imagine I was living here, but I never really expected I would. It's delightful when your imaginations come true, isn't it? But those red roads are so funny. When we got into the train at Charlottetown and the red roads began to flash past, I asked Mrs. Spencer what made them red and she said she didn't know. And for pity's sake, not to ask her any more questions. She said I must have asked her a thousand already. Yeah, I suppose I had to. But how are you going to find out about things if you don't ask questions? And what does make roads red? Well, I don't know, said Matthew.
1: Thank you for
0: listening to Sleepy. Good night.